You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I'm grateful for each of you tuning in today, and support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. Compass Real Estate, the region's largest and most dynamic real estate company in the Valley. For more information and to view current listings, visit compass.com. What I enjoy about reading is learning from others. Books are an opportunity for people to share their thoughts and opinions, perspectives, and by reading, I can learn other people's perspectives on life. Here's my quote for you today. It is not that we have a short time to live. It is that we waste a lot of it. People are frugal in guarding their personal property, but as soon as it comes to squandering time, they are most wasteful of the one thing in which it is right to be stingy. And that's from Seneca. I thought that was really interesting and insightful that such a profound and relevant quote in today's world was written in such an ancient time. Think about it, that Seneca was talking about how people waste their time even before what we have today. Thank you for listening to that little quote, and I will now proceed on to today's episode, which is episode 204. My guest today is Carlin Gerard. Carlin is the executive director of Teton County Conservation District. Carlin had the pleasure of growing up in a small town back east and playing in the woods, which is pretty much right out his back door. And that really started his love and passion for being in the great outdoors and which helped transition him from the east to the west. And Carlin's gonna share with us some interesting thoughts that he learned while studying some old oil fields for his master's degree. And what I took away is the balance between what we use and need in us as a society with being kind and thoughtful to the environment. And as the executive director of a natural resource agency, Carlin and his team are helping our community with so many important topics. It is truly a wide range of areas which the Teton County Conservation District helps us with. It covers pollination, firewise landscapes, how to identify and manage weeds, it helps you know if your drinking water is safe to drink. Believe it or not, there's arsenic in the water out here, just due to the minerals. And coming very soon from the Teton County Conservation District is a handbook to help us all be good natural resource stewards. Carlin, thank you for joining me today here at the Jackson Hole Connection. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule, protecting Teton County and having a conversation with me. Absolutely. Good to get to know you. And that's my passion. Well, let's let's start off, Carlin, with 
how did you land here in Jackson? So where did you grow up? Where were you born? And then what's your story for, for making it out this way? Like so many of us, I started elsewhere. I was born in Northwestern Massachusetts, very, very small town uh, up in the crook between Vermont and New York. Great place to grow up, honestly, right on the Appalachian Trail and the land behind me felt like an endless wilderness when I was young. Early in my life, I was able to take advantage of some camp opportunities that were really great for me and, and got to head out west and kind of got a feel for what it was like out here. And when I had the opportunity for college, I ventured to Prescott College in Arizona and yeah, never never really turned back after that and spent the rest of my life out west. So from there, moved to Utah where I'm met my wife actually on a field job. And while we were in, in the town of Randolph, Utah, for those those folks who might know it's south of Bear Lake a little ways, we took my motorcycle on a beautiful one-day trip, eight hours on, on the dirt bike up to Jackson. But it was one of those beautiful July days that burns into your memory when everything's green. And that fall, we kind of decided, hey, let's let's move to Jackson. And it was supposed to just be a winter winter gig to get us through to the next summer field job. And we've moved away three times and moved back three times and been here for, for about 15 years. Well, hopefully now you get you let your wife drive the motorcycle and you can ride on the back. You know, it's funny because I still have that motorcycle. It still fires right up every time. And it's largely because of my wife and the nostalgia of, of her meeting me. That's that's was the only mode of transportation I owned at the time that me and my wife met. And so we did a lot of adventuring and exploring on dirt roads and paved roads. But I've I've thought to get rid of it multiple times now with kids and a dog. Um, hard to get out on the dirt bike, but it's her that that keeps it around. That's awesome. I love it. I, I'd love to learn more about this community that you grew up in in Northwest Massachusetts. That you said it's the back door is has the Appalachian Trail there. When you say small community, what is small community? So I grew up in a town called Cheshire, Massachusetts, that is probably about twenty five hundred or three thousand people, but. The community that I grew up in is actually called Farnham's, Massachusetts. No one knows that, but it's about 10 houses that are really like a mile from anything else. And there's a lake on one side and it's an undeveloped lake, largely. Most of the lakeshore is undeveloped, which is very rare, especially back east. And then behind us, there was some private land that we had full access to that that was adjacent to Mount Greylock which is the tallest mountain in Massachusetts. And, and the Appalachian Trail was maybe three miles I could walk to the Appalachian Trail from my house, kind of through the woods. And, and from there, you could hike right up to Greylock, which I've done probably eight miles to the top of this, you know, 3000 foot mountain. And I just, I just think as a kid, your spatial perspective is so small. And, I, you know, I just had endless opportunities to explore all around me, lots of wooded area, not many people. As you grow older, though, you know, the, that same area is something that I could circumnavigate in one day now. But as a child, it just it was just a great place to grow up. Spent all my time outdoors, did a lot of fishing and hiking around. That's beautiful. I grew up in a small town in Mississippi and we would come home and my mom would hose us down. We'd be so muddy. <laughs> yeah, I had I had twins below me. 
And so my mom, there was four of us with twins below me and I was the middle child. And my mom gave me a watch at a pretty young age. And it started with, you know, be back in 15 minutes. And at a pretty young age, it was be back in three hours. And I took full advantage. That's awesome. Do you think we can do that with our kids here in Jackson? I, I do. Yeah. I, I consider this a relatively safe place in the scheme of things. It wasn't without its hazards. I, I got into some trouble, but all learning experiences and you kind of got to hit those speed bumps eventually. But yeah, I, I look forward to the days that I could give my kids a little bit more leeway and, and cause that same trouble themselves. Yeah. Yep. I think we all got to ca- cause a little bit of trouble, you know, good hearted trouble. There's nothing wrong with that. I agree. And you know, the, it, it really, it teaches you a lot of independence. I think that's the thing for me that that early childhood experience, experience with a very long leash really just gave me the confidence, say for instance, to, you know, when I was 18 years old to just head out to Arizona and start living out there and et cetera, et cetera. And what do you and your wife do out here now? What do you do? And then it, your wife has an interesting job too. She does. Yeah. So I'm the executive director at the Teton Conservation District here in Jackson, small, local, community-oriented natural resource agency. We're here to help people solve their natural resource issues and protect this amazing place we have. My wife is the bio, is a biologist on the National Elk Refuge. A lot of her job deals with disease but she also gets to do a lot of other fun stuff. She's doing a pollinator survey right now and bird surveys. And yeah, she's, we, we've both done a lot of different things both here and in our previous careers. But right now we're both in a really good place in terms of doing the types of jobs that we're really passionate about and really worked our entire careers to get to. That's beautiful. I love it. And are you a scientist by trade, Carlin? Yeah, absolutely. Environmental science for my undergrad and and I've worked doing bird work, fisheries work, ungulate work, and started the conservation district here after my master's degree where I studied oil and gas development on the impact of oil and gas development on fisheries and water quality, riparian habitats, turned that into experience for the water resource position for the Teton Conservation District. And after maybe about seven years, transitioned to the director. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And, and I, you know, the, the, I'm sitting at a desk a little bit more now, doing a little bit more administrative work, but certainly my passion and experience lies with, with natural resources. And, and you guys cover a pretty broad scope of services that you offer. We really do. It's, it's very diverse. We have seven staff and we're focused on it's kind of complicated to describe, I have to admit it. We're rooted in agriculture and soil and water conservation, protection of native habitats, but we have an ele- locally elected board. It's, it's actually, our board is elected on the ballot, as is actually our funding is, is reoccurring through a election on our ballot, or on our local ballot here. And we really do cover a lot of different topics. And that local board gives us that direction to really address those issues here locally that are that are unique to us. It's not a state or federal mandate. It's really what our local community and our local board is hearing from that local community that, that guides what we're doing. So we do a lot with native plants. We're doing 
pollinator programs and native plant programs, one coming out here really soon called the Conservation Planting Program. We work with agriculture, ranching, farming. We also do a lot with water quality. That was where I started. A lot of the things you're hearing about right now in the news cycle are the result of data that we collected and, and programs that we have helped support. Things down in Hoback, Fish Creek, Flat Creek impairments for sediment or E. coli. A lot of that is, is the type of things we work in as well. So very, very broad. What's impacting our water quality? And, and why, I mean, we're not drinking directly out of the river. So what's, what's the importance here? So water quality is a broad topic, I have to admit. I mean, at the very most fundamental basis, our geology affects our water quality. So there's places here where there's arsenic in the water, purely originates from, from geology. In other areas, though, we have impacts from humans largely. Everywhere you go, water is impacted by what people are doing. Here, what people are doing is actually mostly residential, kind of human occupation. It's not so much, you know, industrial or commercial agriculture, but just the presence of a lot of human beings in one place causes its fair, fair number of problems. So, you know, we, we're dealing with issues like wastewater, you know, when we flush our toilet or, or for that matter, take a shower, where does all that water go and what type of impact does it have on our streams and rivers? Something we've looked into a lot and there's a lot of opportunities to do it better. I think that's, that's what's so fun about this natural resource piece is that you can't really do it perfect and you have to find those thresholds of diminishing return. And I think there is a lot of room for improvement when it comes to water quality. So what does happen when we flush our toilet? Well, it depends on where you live. I live in the town of Jackson. I work in the town of Jackson. So that's all on the town of Jackson wastewater sewer system. So all the water from Jackson and really a lot of other places actually as well, from the airport, from Wilson, all that water goes through a, a series of sewer systems through South Park and right adjacent to the Wyoming Game and Fish Department, South Park Wildlife Habitat Management Area, there's a, a big lagoon system down there that treats our wastewater through a lot of different ways. I, you know, I'm not going to get into too much detail, but does a series of, of different types of treatment. And then it's finally UV treated, which kills all the bacteria. And then it's discharged into wetlands on the South Park Habitat Management Area down there before being discharged to the Snake River. So it's a surface water discharge and the level of treatment you provide to that waste load really defines the type of impact that that waste load has. That's the interesting part. As you get more people, you get a higher waste load. And if you don't provide a higher level of treatment, especially what you can anticipate is, you know, a higher contaminant load entering the Snake River or other water bodies. All that water goes somewhere. And, and then what about everybody with the septic systems? Yeah, so septic systems are just on-site waste disposal systems, really. You know, there's a septic tank that tends to gather the, the solid material that needs to get pumped out. And then the water goes through typically what you call a leach field, where it's just draining and filtering, physically filtering through the substrate, which gets rid of a lot of the bacterial load. And then in that soil that it's being leached through, there's also a bunch of microbes. And there is a, a level of breakdown associated with that as well. So, you know, wastewater should be out of sight, out of mind. No one really wants to be 
dealing with their wastewater all the time. But in the last few years, we have a lot of people here focused on this topic. And, and I think it's important. It's something we should do a great job doing. And in most cases we are, but there's also a lot of room for improvement. Hmm. Now you started off, you were doing a lot of work with drilling, you said, and before you were with the conservation districts and, and water, how it impacted that. What are things that you saw that would probably pique people's like, whoa, I can't believe that happens. <laughs> Okay. So for my master's degree, yes, I was, I, I lived in a camper trailer for two full summers. And when I say full, I mean full in the LaBarge oil and gas field west of Big Piney. That study area was chosen part anyways, because it's a very old oil and gas development, hundred plus years, they've been getting oil out of that development. And so part of the reason why I chose it is because it doesn't have all this high tech, not all of the infrastructure out there is high tech, new tech, you know, new infrastructure. A lot of it is aging old infrastructure that's been there a long time. And I was trying to understand what type of impact you can have. And going back to an old facilities where I thought you'd, you'd be most likely to see that. And I think I was right. And so, you know, I think it's really important for people to recognize how amazing our streams are here, for instance, comparably, you know, there's, there's issues here. I don't want to discount the issues we have. There's room for improvement to do it better. But picture this. You're walking up the stream bed and you take your foot out of the mud and you can just smell gasoline or the, at least the smell of hydrocarbons. And when you look down in the water, what you realize happened is by pulling your foot out of the mud in the stream bed, you dislodged a organic hydrocarbon mat that was buried below the stream bed and these globs of paraffin bubble up to the surface and are just rainbow ring releasing hydrocarbons, gasoline, benzene, a whole host of different hydrocarbons into the water as you go. The type of water bodies that you wouldn't let your dog drink out of, they're, they're so contaminated and, and have such a long history of contamination. That's, that's one thing. The air quality down there is another that I think is really remarkably in in that particular area they use evaporation basins to essentially get the water to reduce and, and evaporate off of these containment pits so there's these huge containment pits of toxic waste where they spray it into the air just it's sprayed into the air and <laughs> with the idea that it's it's evaporating off the water that's true but when you're standing downwind of one of those facilities on a hot day, headaches, nausea. I've seen areas where huge swaths of sagebrush down gradient of these things is just dead on account of that material in, in a strong wind being just taken out of these containment pits and blowing out into the, into the desert. My first experience going to the stream, I get down to the water body and there's all these caddis flies just floating down the stream. And I'm thinking to myself, huh, never seen anything like this before. And shortly after we found out it, it was because there was an oil spill directly into the stream from a pipeline rupture that discharged enough contaminants that the bug community was just, you know, either dying and floating downstream or releasing from the bottom to try to get downstream. That's a, a defensive reaction from bad water quality. So I guess I would just say that the impacts in some instances are very real, especially when you get into older, 
oil and gas development. And, and I think it just helps shed light on the relative types of water quality impairment that truly exist out there, not only in the world, but right in our back door in Wyoming. And what should happen to those areas to, can you repair it? Another really, really good question. And there is work being done to, to address issues like this all the time. So there, there, there is things you can do to address these types of things, absolutely. And I think in some cases, it's very worthwhile. I think there's an argument to be made, and this is controversial stuff, and hopefully it doesn't get me in trouble for saying it, but it's, there's also an argument to be made that in some of these places where we have 100-year-old dozens of oil spills into these small basins, perhaps that's a good place for oil and gas development right now relative to expansion into a new area where we haven't seen these impacts. So I'm not trying to say that, you know, I know this one way or another, but in terms of what's a good area right now to develop oil and gas, perhaps some of these areas that already have these very long lasting legacy effects may be a better option than a pristine, like for instance, a pristine headwater to the Hoback River. Hmm. So instead of potentially damaging a new area, at least some damage has been done. So see what else you can get out of there. And, you know, that sounds really kind of fatalistic. And But we all are using oil and gas all day long. Yeah. And so it's easy to kind of, you know, well, nowhere is better, but it needs to be somewhere. Unless yeah. we really change our behavior, like really change it. And so I think... There is an argument to be made, at least, and, I, and I'm not saying it's the right one, but that that's triage at times may be one of the things that should be evaluated. Huh. That's really fascinating. I never looked at it that way. That's. And I, I, I don't know how controversial the thing is to say that, but that was one of my feelings walking away. It was like, wow, the amount of money and resources it would take to fix this hundred year old issue that's it's a lot and it's slow increments and so yeah it's just it's just hard to say the best way to approach it but that was one one thing that i've considered after hmm. that's interesting and and so part of what you guys do is you know help you, you said that you help landowners protect their natural resources so what size of landowner do you all work with every single size landowner absolutely and there's many, many examples of that. I think one of the ones that is really about to come forward is, is this conservation planting program, which is, you know, really the soft launch is actually today. And it's, it's going to be advertised into the future. And a lot of that program is divided into two pillars. One is agricultural and one is residential. And so things like incentivizing people to grow food on their property through hoop house or, or grow that there's different terms, but essentially extending growing seasons and protecting crops to the development of native plantings. These are things that we're going to be providing technical expertise and, and a relatively modest, but a, but a level of cost share that we hope provides an incentive that in this case, especially builds back the increment of development that we're seeing lost in other cases. So I wanna to talk to those people with a small lot because perhaps they have a corner of their lawn where we can get pollen, native pollinators present to, to help create habitat 
where it's been lost historically and, and make some, you know, gain some ground coming back. So we, we work with all size landowners. I'm very curious to know what's the importance of not just pollinators, but native pollinators. And I'm, I'm a guess that this is different than having your beautiful green grass yard. You're, you're definitely shooting for something a little different. We are. And, you know, there's a balance. I have a green grass yard. I have two kids. We, we are outside constantly in our yard. But I also look at my yard for other values as well. We have moose. We have deer. That, that are in our yard every single year and it's sometimes in very high concentrations. And so not trimming, for instance, in my yard, not trimming my golden willow, which isn't even a native species, but when I first got there, I would trim the base of it because there was all these shoots coming off of it. So I realized that if I didn't, the moose would do it for me. Similarly, getting into more of the pollinators and bugs, you know, it's very tempting to Think about our lawn as a protection against all insects. You know, if a nice green lawn, maybe you have less bees. I think a lot of people would prefer less bees, right, around their homes. Well, I've come to get to know the bees that are around my yard, and in particular, the mud wasps, which I love and I think are incredibly fascinating creatures. I let a fair amount of mud wasps live in my um, sheds. They are not particularly aggressive. I, me and my family have never been stung by them. And I'm not saying someone with a bee allergy should have a whole host of uh, mud wasp nests around, but they eat spiders and they seem to exist quite well around human structure without causing many problems. I guess the point here is that diversity of, of wildlife habitat oftentimes starts with the vegetation community. So the more diverse vegetation community, the more diverse insect community, and you get this layer built upon that. I wouldn't have mud wasps if I didn't have some spiders in my yard. And, and that just goes up and up. And a lot of the native pollinators here really rely on very specific types of vegetation, both for a food source, but then also to lay their eggs in and be successful. All of these species around here, I always say, if there's a winter as bad as there is in Jackson Hole, the species who have found a way to live here, have done it through a smart, unique strategy. Hmm. And part of that is just giving them a place to, to have that. And we're seeing these drastic declines in pollinators all over the United States. And I just think that our, our residential habitats are actually a place where we can help restore some of that, which then helps restore the bird community that feeds on those, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, the pollinator, is that the, the insect or is that the plant? Great question. The pollinator is the insect. So okay. that could be our native bees, our native butterflies or moths. Uh, lots and lots of insects pollinate plants. And, and the thing about pollination is that's the reproductive potential of that plant. Essentially, they can't have viable seeds or viable, you know, their fruit can't become viable seeds. Their flowers can't become viable seeds without without pollination. And so we see, we see a very high level of importance in terms of our native plant communities, but also agriculturally, the loss of these pollinators is devastating in terms of the loss of, of pollinators that are putting the fruit on all of the plants that we consume on a daily basis. So pollinators are, we rely on pollinators way more than anybody knows it. And by 
having this green chemical landscape around us, we're not doing anything to benefit those incredibly important and diverse array of species. Hmm. Interesting. Hey, Carlin, I want to talk more about this pollination. And then I want to get into some of the trees as well that we get to experience every spring or when spring is, but we got to get a word from our sponsor and then we're going to come right back. Thank you. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,954 tons of food waste are disposed in the trash right here in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve our county's goal to reduce waste and recycle more, which will help us aim for zero waste. For more information on Teton County Integrated Solid Waste and Recycling's Curb to Compost Commercial Food Waste Program, visit tetoncountywy.gov recycle and join today. Compass Real Estate is the market leader in Jackson Hole, providing every client with unparalleled professionalism and breakthrough marketing strategies for fine properties. Their organization is comprised of dedicated and experienced real estate professionals, and they offer a collection of some of the most sought after properties in the Valley. For more information on buying or selling in Jackson Hole, visit compass.com or give them a call, 307-733-6060. Carlin, I'm enjoying this pollination conversation or just overall what Teton County Conservation District does, but you guys are doing some amazing work. And I think we take for granted the importance of the entire ecosystem and when you're talking about the pollinators. But let's talk about the trees because we have lots of people moving here and when in the springtime you see the stuff floating around some people think it's cottonwood i think there's some other trees that cause some stuff to blow around and the wind blows and you see the just the yellow moving through the through the air <laughs> yeah yeah this spring especially <laughs> i did know pollen lots and lots of pollen and there's some spruce trees here that certainly produce a lot of pollen and then there's a couple different types of cottonwood trees, both native and non-native, that also produce a, a, you know, more like a white fluff, and that's the seed actually from from cottonwoods, and and I think that that's such a, a great cue here because I don't want to make a case that every species of tree is right for every instance. Maybe you you have a real aversion to to certain types of of species. There's so much diversity. There's so many great opportunities to, to plant native species. It doesn't have to be one or the other. And our wildlife and GIS specialist, Morgan Graham, he's been spending an increasing amount of time talking to people about these exact things to, to get the right thing that works for them. Because it's, it's not that every human habitat, we should just try to turn it into a wilderness. A great example is for instance, not planting cherry trees, even choke cherry trees, native choke cherry trees, right up around your doorway where moose and bears are attracted to those, those locations. It's, it really is good to be thoughtful about your, your, your landscape. So it's not a one size fits all. If you're sensitive to pollen, 
Some of the spruce trees in particular mm-hmm. might not be the best bet, but at the same time, maybe an aspen grove could, could be a, a, a good, you could have a good site on your, your property for something like that, which again, provides great habitat and food for wildlife. We've we found some apple trees that produce apples. I don't know how native they are, but it's pretty cool to see the apples. And the moose do like eating those apples. <laughs> yeah. And apple trees are a really good topic right now, actually. Apple trees are not native here, but they were planted extensively. And in fact, at one point, I think a homestead required to get land in the homestead, like you, you needed to plant yourself an apple tree on your property. So they're all over the West, something like that. Yeah. Apple trees have become a big issue here locally, whether you know it or not, because of bears. They are a huge bear attractant in the fall, one of the primary bear attractants. And so we are starting to discourage planting of new apple trees as well fruiting apple trees. There's there's beautiful blossoming, but not fruit-bearing apple trees. Those are a better option. But the only case that we really encourage people to plant apple trees at this point in time is if they're planning on eating those apples. And another option, if you have an apple tree on your property, is actually to reach out to Farmstead Cider. We cost-shared with, with a couple of great guys, Ian and Orion, mm-hmm. to, to develop a program where they started harvesting those apples and turning them into hard cider. And there's actually a, an apple drive coming up where if you harvest the apples, you can actually bring them to them, but also you can contact them to see if they'll come to you and take advantage of those apples because when they rot in the fall, they become a huge bear attractant and they're, they're a lot of black bears and even some grizzly bears have met their demise on account mm. of becoming really acclimated to, to apple trees in the, in the developed environment. Mm. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on that, but I have interviewed Ian with Farmstead and what they're doing as far as collecting the fruit in the valley is phenomenal. And that's a good example of the type of thing conservation districts love. Coming up with these win-win opportunities where we're taking advantage of a a food source, but also mitigating a a serious bear attractant. Mm. Um, That that really originated from a partnership with the conservation district. I don't want to take full credit, but I do think we're instrumental in, in getting that program off the ground and and they're harvesting many, many apple trees in the community now. Yeah, that's, that's fabulous. And so what are some other things that you guys do over there that people might not know about or some big impact things that maybe people's actions, they're just not completely aware of that just makes a little small change of, because what I hear from you, you know, talking about the pollinators, for example, It's not like you have to go replant your whole yard, but if you took a a small spot and put some native pollinating plants and flowers in there, it's going to make a difference. Absolutely. And so this year, along those lines to start with, you know, we essentially paid for the shipping of one big truckload of pollinator plantings here. We had slots and people had to pay for the, for for their allotment of, of native pollinator plants. But by offsetting the shipping and, and creating some, some awareness around the topic, we were able to you know, add a, a whole shipment of native pollinators that landed on the ground and, and produced native habitat here. So that's, that's one small example. Another thing that we do that I, I think people should know about anyways is we have a cost share program on well water test kits. We buy these well water test kits from a lab in Laramie. 
and we re redistribute them at half the cost to anyone in the community. We do that for a few different reasons. One is because of our remote location, it's actually a little tricky to do water testing here, but it's very important. And so by cost sharing, we make it a little bit easier for, for people to access these kits, and then we help them through the process. And one of the other benefits to the community is that, you know, we've sold something like 500 or 600 of these over 10 years. We've become really aware of where water quality problems exist. So yes, we're getting individuals their water quality result, but if you were to come in to, my, to the office now and ask me or the water resource specialist, David, you know, hey, I'd like to get a test and I'm trying to figure out what's going on with my water we would probably have a pretty good idea of the concerns you should be thinking about purely based on, on the previous record we have of that water quality data. And we produced a, a map of the entire county that showed different water quality parameters and how they change through the county and where there's potential risks. So that's one example. Another thing we do is we provide wildfire risk overviews. And that program has been extremely popular. That's your friend, Rob Scroy. He will go out on site and help you assess wildfire risk and how to mitigate it. And then we also provide cost share if you, you know, a certain amount of cost share based on your level of response and actually doing those mitigation strategies. And, and that's also, it's not just about the individual for us, you know, yes, it helps potentially protect the home, but we also see that as help protecting our firefighters. By creating space around homes and around roadways, we, we do a lot of work to make sure that our firefighters in this community who are responding to these types of problems can do it in a safe and effective manner. So that's, again, uh, it's not just about protecting the individual, it's also about protecting the community. Mm. Um, I could go on and on about our programs, but I'll let you guide me in the right direction. Well, I mean, I mean, what you're talking about is is important information for for everybody to be aware of and it's it's hard to say you know where should the conversation go because like you said you have so many different you know programs out there and you know like you said or you know I don't think we we talked about this but you're funded through through the property tax side of things yeah absolutely and and I appreciate you bringing that up this fall and, and it's not a four-year cycle, but this fall, the voters uh, on the ballot get to decide whether or not the Teton Conservation District has access to up to one mil of property taxes. And our board hasn't taken one mil of property taxes in some time. Right now, we're at roughly 0.6 mils, which is in the realm of one one hundredth of the total property tax comes to the conservation district. So I agree with you. It's it is important that we get the word out about what we're doing. I think we're doing a little better at that, but I've been talking mostly about the things we do as a district a little bit more in in isolation. That's maybe not the right word, but most of the work we do is actually in direct partnership with other organizations. And I think that's why our name doesn't have that same recognition as some of the other organizations in this community. But we partner with the town, the county, the state to do all sorts of meaningful pro projects that get on the ground that, that wouldn't otherwise. And in addition to many of our local non-for-profits, I'm very, very proud of the work we're doing in many, many regards. And, and that's an attempt to put resources back into the community in a really efficient way, not growing local government, not adding additional staff, but instead finding these really efficient avenues to provide resources and, 
and technical expertise to, to advance our mission, but through other organizations as well. So our, our grant program is, is really thriving. We have a really strong system, very accountable system, and we're leveraging huge amounts of funds with, with our resources to do some really incredible things. And by partnering with those other organizations, does, doesn't that help you stretch your funding further and, and their funding? I mean, it's when you're partnering, it's you're combining forces. Absolutely. I, one example, and I could, honestly, there's many, many, I've been here long enough to know a lot of good examples, but one example, Crystal Creek Campground, during the, during the flood that took out Yellowstone, uh-huh. um, Crystal Creek Campground experienced a massive microburst that took out, and I'm, I'm going to use the word dozens, but, you know, many trees right in that campground. So, we were approached by the uh, by Trout Unlimited actually because this opportunity arose. All these trees got put down right in that location, and there's multiple locations where the Grovant R- uh, Road is a direct threat of erosion and being lost because of Crystal Creek and the Grovant right there. And so mm. we just funded a grant request a couple weeks ago now to take that down woody material and turn it into a bank stabilization project that meets wild and scenic river criteria and protects infrastructure. Those are the types of opportunities that we get asked to participate in a lot, where there's this really strong synergy, really great opportunity, but no one prepared for it. No one envisioned it. It just happened. And by providing $15,000 for a design to an engineering consultant, now there's a great project that's going to grow, go on the ground, protect infrastructure in a really ecologically sensitive way, and the rest of the costs are going to be incurred by, well, and there are no other costs really, financially, the Forest Service is going to do the work, and our non-for-profit partners, as well as the Snake River Fund, are going to help the project administration. So those are the types of things that a, a small amount of property tax to get a really great outcome that's going to benefit the road and take advantage of a unique situation. Those are, that's the real sweet spot for conservation districts. Mm, That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Now, Carlin, we've spoken a lot about the funding and and the conservation in district and, and, and you and your history and your background. How can people learn more? How accessible is the conservation district? I love that question. We are the local community level conservation organization. We are available all the time. You know, I I pick up my phone after hours and field all sorts of calls, emergency and otherwise. But our staff here is extremely passionate about the work they do. I think direct communication, if you're ever interested, is is always going to yield a productive phone call. So never hesitate to reach out. 307-733-2110. You can always email us. Additionally, we have monthly board meetings and our board meetings are all open to the public. Our board materials, all open to the public. We are an extremely transparent organization when it comes to just showing our full hand of what we're doing. Nothing is secret here. And I make this argument a lot in this town, a interested, motivated member of the community in a small town like this can have a profound effect. And we see it all the time. 
that is extremely true for a small organization like ours as well. If there's something that you're, you feel very strongly about that needs to be addressed and you bring it before the conservation district staff or board, you're going to get a response. And so I would always encourage people to reach out directly. Our website is fantastic. Thanks to our communication specialist, Phoebe Coburn. We have newsletters. Our social media outreach, I think, is getting to be very strong as well. So there's a lot of ways you can, you know, whether it wants, you want it to be passive or actively involved, we're trying to make that as possible as we can. Well, thank you. I think sometimes we don't know what's really available to us until we start asking questions and knowing that you're always available for a conversation can make a big difference for sure. And we just don't see it as a, a burden. You know, when, when people call and reach out and express their concerns or, or are asking for help, we, we like to be responsive. And, and, you know, I think in part because our mill levy is on the ballot, that is, you know, we try really hard to remember that we are here to provide the support for the community that they're voting for through our funding and, and with our elected board. And so we try really hard to listen. We don't have some state agency, well, we're under the Department of Ag, but they're not telling us what we should be doing. We're mm -hmm. listening to the community and trying to be responsive to the, to the needs that are arising at any one point. That's beautiful, that's beautiful. Well, thank you, Carlin. I appreciate you taking this time to share more about who you are and what you do and what's going on over there at Teton County Conservation District. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity. May I mention just one more thing that's forthcoming? You know, yep. I just I just think this is a great opportunity. What you're going to see coming out in the in the next couple months is is a a book, really, a publication called the Mountain Neighbor Handbook. And we hear oftentimes that there's a fear in this community that conservation is not happening at the speed of development. <laughs> Essentially, development has outpaced conservation. And, and we take that really seriously. The conservation planting program is one part of that. But we're, we're also working with about 50 different partners now. We have The content has been generated as a community-wide endeavor. And what we're hoping to do is create a, a, a document that outlines, you know, a natural resource vision that we share as our community, especially for those people who are moving here, who are new to the community and who are interested in engaging. We're trying to make it as easy as we possibly can. It's a, it's a handbook for natural resource conservation and stewardship in Teton County. And I just got a final proof for edit. It's sitting on my desk. That's why I couldn't help but mention it. And really looking forward to, to how people interact with that in the, in the coming months. And when will we see the, final product? We're looking at October, probably. Okay. Um, we'll have a digital version available shortly, and then we're going to have print versions, and, and we're planning on, on doing a whole host of different outreach around it. That's fabulous. Well, thank you for creating that, because like you said, I think a lot of people who live here don't know what good stewardship is, but then also some of the new people moving, it'll help educate them too. And we can complain a lot, you know, we can complain a lot, but I think another thing we can do is try to put a point out in space and just say, yeah, we're not all doing all of these things, but if you take some of these steps, you're headed in the right direction. Well said, Garland. Thank you. Well Thank said. You. Well, have a superb day and it was great to meet you and I look forward to meeting you in person. Absolutely. Now that we've met each other, I'm sure we'll see each other every two weeks from now on. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it goes. Take care, Carlin. Have a good day.
To learn more about Carlin and Teton County Conservation District, visit the Jackson Hole Connection.com, episode number 204. Everybody, thank you for tuning in today. Thank you to Michael Morey, who's helped edit and market every single episode since the beginning. And thank you to my wife, Laura, my boys, Lewis and William. Sandy Levy, I heard from your boys that you listened, so thank you as well. Get out there and share this podcast. Use that ever so loving hate relationship we have with social media and share it. I appreciate you sharing your time with me today. Your time is valuable and I respect your time. So cheers till next week. And I see you right back here for another episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.